The role of the modern day pastor and ministry leader is changing. More and more pastors around the world today are ministry leaders who are doing multiple jobs and wearing multiple hats. They are bivocational or co-vocational leaders. They may be pastors looking for creative ways to use their church or staff to create income and revenue for sustainability. They may be ministry leaders who are looking for ways to launch for-profit initiatives or integrate innovation into their organization. They may be those who want to do missions globally and find creative ways to create sustainability. Or they may be marketplace leaders who are called to stay in the marketplace, but want to be part-time pastors, lay pastors, start ministries or nonprofits. This is the age of the new ministry leader. They wear different hats and do different things. They are technologically savvy and global. They are who God is using to make an impact in cities and communities around the world. This is the Entrepreneurial Ministry Leader Podcast, and these are their stories. Well, good morning, everyone. It is great for me to talk to someone who I'm just getting to know. Here, the last couple of days, I've been looking through your website, different articles, Taylor Schumann, author and speaker. Good morning to you. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Well, as we talk, you are sitting now, uh, home now is in Charleston, South Carolina, your mm-hmm. husband and a two and a half year old. Share a little bit about yourself, share a little bit about, uh, we're going to talk about your book and your journey, but what are you doing right now? Yeah, so um, right now, like you said, we're in Charleston, so we're, we're enjoying the summer by the beach and um, so busy with our, our toddler and our two dogs. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm in the process of launching my book into the world and, and talking to people about um, gun violence and faith and how those two things work together. And um, yeah, yeah, it's been good. Taylor, I know some people are going to start getting to know you through your book, and some people are very familiar with you. Talk a little bit about that journey, gun violence. Why gun violence? How did a young writer like yourself start talking about gun violence? Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah. um, In 2013, April 12th, 2013, I was working for a community college. Uh, I was right out of school myself, and um, a, a student at the time walked in with a shotgun and um, I happened to be sitting kind of out at the, the front desk in the lobby area. And yeah, he um, he attempted to shoot me from behind before I knew he was there and the he couldn't get the safety off the gun. So I had time to kind of run into a supply closet and shut the door behind me and he fired through the door. And so the bullet uh, went in and out of my left hand. Um, and he shot one other student and she survived as well, thankfully. Um, but yeah, that experience of of surviving a shooting the day of and then learning how that impacts your life in the days after and the months and the years um, and all the things that kind of come with that really opened my eyes to what thousands of people in the United States are going through every day, not just the people that you kind of see on the news. Um, and yeah, I just, I could no longer ignore, ignore that in the world and, and really dove into the issue of gun violence and, and what that looks like and trying to educate people both with my experience and with all the things I've learned about it to see if we can find some common ground, have some good conversations and and see what we can do to reduce this yeah. suffering. 
Taylor, I was just reading your story of what happened on that day. In some sense, you weren't supposed to be at that desk. And yeah. uh, from what I read, your computer wasn't working. And suddenly you're talking with your boss and there this individual walks in. What was it like in the recovery process? How, I mean, a lot of people could say, hey, Taylor, I'm praying for you. How did you have to work yourself back both physically as well as mentally? Multiple surgeries, but more so the emotional, spiritual, and mental toll that it took on you. Yeah, so physically I had uh, one surgery that day, um, and then I had three more after. I had about a year of occupational therapy, physical therapy to kind of gain some of the use of my hand back. But, um, you know, a couple weeks after the initial shooting, my family was saying, Oh, we think you really need to go see a counselor, get some therapy, get some some counseling. And I was saying, no, I don't want to go. I cannot talk about this. You know, how am I supposed to go talk to somebody about this um, that wasn't there, that doesn't know what it was like? And so my mom found a counselor through through a family friend, um, and and she and my fiance at the time, my husband now, basically put me in the car and took me to counseling. And um, I was like, well, I guess I'm doing this. And um, she turned out to be, you know, probably the best thing that could have happened for me. And um, I, I saw her for about a year, um, usually a few times a week. And she really helped care for my heart and my mind and helped me figure out how to kind of enter back into life and how to keep going. And um, she was a Christian-based licensed professional counselor. And then after I saw her, I I began seeing a um, clinical psychologist to help me learn about PTSD and kind of the way trauma impacts the body and more of the, you know, kind of scientific stuff about about trauma that I needed to know. And, And both of those really helped me um, move forward and heal. And, you know, my faith and, and God were a big part of that as well. I, I know that he used those people in my life to, to, yeah, help me heal and help me recover. When you talked about how your counselor cared for your heart and really be able to talk about that, what did, what did you mean by that? Yeah. You know, I think she was a safe place for me to talk and to be honest about what happened to me because, you know, I have, I still do an amazing and supportive family. Um, My husband is amazing. My in-laws, you know, all my friends, but none of them were there. And no matter how understanding they were and how um, helpful they were, they just couldn't know. And it in some ways made me feel even more isolated from them because I couldn't, I couldn't yeah, help them yeah, see. Yeah, yeah. And they also experienced their own traumas that day. You know, yeah. my my family did, my husband did. Like they have their own um, hurts and fears surrounding that day. And so to have a counselor, her name was Martha, um, that I could be open to and cry to and without worrying about worrying my family, you know, with, with, the things I needed to talk about, um, that was just a gift. And she, yeah, she, you know, we talked a lot about God and about faith and she helped me be honest with God about my feelings. And, um, yeah, she was just someone that I, I knew I could go to for support and for help when I 
um, didn't have anyone else that I could kind of do that with. Yeah. Taylor, like even now, as you look back, those memories will never go away. That trauma will never go away. When did it become okay? Is it a matter of you learning how to deal with it? Is it learning? It's not even pushing it away. When did it be okay with you where you say, I can live with it now? I can, I know how to process it. Yeah, I think um, probably a couple years later when I really started to understand um, trauma and PTSD and how that that's kind of ingrained in our bodies, um, I really began to find ways to let it sort of exist with me and not take me over all the time and learn some some coping skills. Um, I was always able to talk about it fairly freely. I found that like sharing my story and talking about that day kind of helped take some of the power away from it over me and sort of let people in and share those details. Um, and, and so talking about it for me was helpful. It's, it's not the case for everyone, but for me, that was good. And, um, to kind of just acknowledge what was happening in my body. And, you know, if I felt a panic attack coming on or or something like that, um, to, to recognize that in myself, to kind of learn some of those signs and then be able to ask for help if I needed to, to, you know, reach out to someone say, I'm having a really hard day. Um, and then also finding the things that really made me happy, the things that connected me to the world and reminded me um, that I still have my life and that life is good and I can go for a walk and feel the sun and I can pet my dog yeah. and you know do all those things. Um, yeah. So kind of those two really work together for me. Yeah. And I asked you all these things, Taylor, to a small degree, I do understand what you're dealing with because I had to deal with cancer about three years ago. Yeah. And during that cancer, I had sinus cancer. And the doctor says, be prepared mentally and emotionally for pain that you will have to deal with for multiple weeks. Well, Taylor, that pain ended up being eight straight weeks of nonstop pain. And in some sense, my family understood it. My wife understood it and people, but no one understood the pain. It was right there. Every day you woke up, that pain was there. And it wasn't just a five. It wasn't a six. It was a 10 and it didn't stop. I couldn't eat salad foods. I had to, I lost all my taste buds. I lost all my saliva and I had to drink liquids, which tasted like water. But in my head, I couldn't get out of it. It took me years to work through all that journey. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so for you, like PTSD, talk to me about that portion of it. What did that feel like, especially with all of the circumstances and all of that stuff for those who don't understand why is PTSD real within the situation that you had to deal with? Yeah. I, um, began having, you know, flashbacks pretty often. Yeah. Um, really bad nightmares, Things like going into a public place. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, I, I could never quite know what everyone around me was doing. Um, even now, like if we go out to eat or even at church, I have a really hard time kind of sitting with my back facing the door um, because I yeah. can't see who's coming in and out or what they're doing. Because what happened to me was that my back was to the door and I couldn't see someone come in you know, with a gun, um, even things like not being able to have my phone with me because I couldn't have my phone with me that day, you know, to call for help. Um, 
smells, you know, if I, if I smell something that kind of reminds me of gunpowder, um, even, you know, hearing sirens, um, you know, just this morning, I, I heard some sirens and saw a few ambulances go by. And my first thought is, oh, was there a shooting? Um, so all, all sorts of things like that. But, you know, to experience it, something traumatic and near death where I really thought I was going to die. Um, you know, all those things kind of, kind of play out and, and I have the chronic pain portion of it too. And thankfully I've made headway there and have gotten treatment and figured out how to deal with some of that. But for so long, like that pain, you know, it's even if mentally you can have a break, you know, be happy, do something you're not thinking about what happened to you, that pain is there. And that pain is like knocking on the door and like, remember me, remember why I hurt. Remember why you feel this pain? It's because something really bad happened to you. Don't you remember? Um, and and so kind of dealing with that, that physical pain was, you know, imperative to helping with some of that PTSD. Yeah. With your hand now, are you able to type? Was it on your writing hand? Are you able to do a lot? I know, as I read, you have 30% mobility in your hand at this point. Yeah, about 20, about 20% of my hand and um, about 50% of my arm as a whole. Um, it, you know, I, I can type only for a little while at a, at yeah. a time. So writing a book was quite interesting. Um, you know, had to take a lot of breaks. And then, you know, um, things like holding drinks or opening jars, um, even, yeah. you know, having a toddler has been difficult, like, you know, buckling in and out of the car seat and um, yeah. tying shoes and that sort of things are, are getting harder as he's getting older. Um, but, you know, that's 20% of my use of my hand that we never thought I'd, I'd get back. Um, so um, I really am, am grateful for that, but you know, it is yeah. hard. Yeah. How does a church community come alongside and help somebody who's dealing with trauma and dealing with tough circumstances. I know a lot of times church members mean well, Mm -hmm. but they could say, Hey, look, I'm praying for you. Pastors mean well, I'm praying for you. What else can they do? How, how did the church come alongside or how can they do better in terms of coming alongside a person who's dealing with trauma? I think the first thing is just to let that person be able to be honest about what they're feeling because so often, especially when we're talking to maybe pastors or leaders at church, our first instinct is to say, oh yeah, it's been really hard, but I'm so grateful and I'm so, you know, I'm so thankful and and God is good. And I think oftentimes what we really need is just be able to say, this has been really hard and I know God is good, but this is, this is really hard and I'm having a really hard time. And just letting them do that. You know, what I've learned is from this is like, if my friends are having a hard time, if they're experiencing a loss, my job is to just sit with them and say, I'm here for you. What do you need from me? What Do you need me to pray for you? Because I can do that. Do you need me to just bring you food because you're not feeling up to cooking dinner? Do you need me to just sit with you in the quiet? Like, what do you need? I'm here. Um, versus assuming we know what they need. Oh, we're praying for you, blah, blah, blah. Because so many times those can feel like empty words. And really what we need is just this space to lament freely 
And we're not so great at that. I, I hope that's getting better, but we really like to fix things, especially within the church. And, you know, often we just, we can't fix it. Taylor, how do you then get to the point where with your friends or close ones, they are dealing with this tragedy or they're dealing with this situation. How do you get to the point where you're able to push them to continue on with their life? How do you, how do you come along as a friend where you're able to help them, push them and process them, especially if they're stuck with the situation they're in? You know, that's a great question. And I think it's different for every person. Um, I think that, you know, like we were saying, giving them space to kind of be free to mourn all those things. And then also um, saying, hey, would you like to go talk to someone? Would you like to see a counselor? Can I help you find one? Can I take you to the appointment? Um, you know, do you have making sure they have the support, making sure they aren't alone? Um I think that's key because I would not have sought out counseling on my own. I really needed people to help me do that, to get me there when, when I needed that. Um, and then, you know, basically just being with them because so often like trauma and grief, it's so lonely. It's very isolating, especially if it's something that happened to only you. And so making sure that they know that you're there to take them to the grocery store or take them to dinner, just so they don't have to do everything by themselves. Um, I think that's always a really helpful step in the right direction. And then of course, you know, yeah. if, if someone is um, maybe if you're afraid that they're becoming a danger to themselves, um, you know, always seek professional help when you can. Sometimes that's necessary, but um, most of the time I think just, you know, letting someone know that they're not alone, even for the like mundane parts of life. Yeah. I, I know a lot of times one of the things that you shared early on was that your family and also your fiance at that time drove you to see a counselor. And a lot of times as individuals, we love to help. We're not equipped to help, but find somebody who can professionally come alongside with you and help you process those things. And as I remember you saying, that was probably one of the best decisions that you made in your life. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's no way I could have... Um begin to heal, begin to understand, um, and begin to kind of step back into life and be open, even with my family and friends, without kind of that that counsel from someone yeah. who was a neutral party, was there only to help me, only to listen to me. Um, I mean, I, I think even, I wish everyone had that, you know, not just people who have experienced trauma, but just someone to talk to. Correct, 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 yeah. correct. Your book that's coming out on July 20th, When Thoughts and Prayers Aren't Enough, A Shooting Survivor's Journey into the Realities of Gun Violence. Talk to me about the book. Talk to me about gun violence because that's a polarizing issue. A lot of times people, there are some people who feel very, very strongly about guns. And so a lot of times, talk to me about all of that. Yeah. So the, the first part of the book is a lot of what we've been talking about today, kind of my um, memoir portion, if you will, kind of what happened to me and and I'm walking in that. And then the second part is we enter into sort of a general overview of, of gun violence, what it looks like in America, sort of the different types that are most prevalent. And we talk about what we can do about it, some things that have been proven to be helpful, other things that have not. We talk through some myth versus facts uh, about, about gun violence and then um, about how 
the church and how Christians as a whole can kind of get in involved and, and talk about it and make it more of a sort of faith centered issue rather than only a political one. Um, but yeah, these, these are hard conversations to, to have. People aren't typically neutral about guns. So, you know, there's a lot of feelings and a lot of um, history ingrained in this conversation. Taylor, do you find that people are willing to talk about this issue? Are they willing to dialogue or is this something where you say, okay, this is a personal belief. I don't want to talk about it. What's been your remarks or what's been what uh, response so far to this conversation? I think most people are willing to talk about it. Um, I think some of them, you know, only want to kind of talk from their perspective. It's not really a conversation. It's more just like talking to someone about it. Um, I think a lot of people are willing to, to share and to listen. And I think that we often assume that's not the case because it is such a polarizing issue. And so if we're listening to maybe the media or, you know, some online spaces that, that are sort of extreme, we sort of feel like it's a lost cause. There's no common ground. But, you know, when I get down and have those conversations with maybe one person, I have found so often that there's like at least one little place that we can see eye to eye and, and learn. And um, so kind of my goal here is to focus on those individual conversations and um, helping people feel educated so that they aren't afraid to talk about it. Um, but yeah, it's no matter how you want to look at it, it it's going to be sort of controversial and hard. But yeah, it's definitely possible. Not only controversial and hard, but more so a silent issue amongst Christians. Why do you think mm -hmm. that's the case? You know, it's such an interesting question. Um, I think that for a long time, guns and even other issues um, in in politics, it was looked at as it's you know it's it's only political issue. I have an opinion on guns because I'm conservative or because I'm liberal. Um, we have never really seen it discussed, and, and of course some people have, but largely as a Christian issue, um, maybe like other things like abortion um, or, you know, refugees or kind of whatever topic you want to interject there. Um, and it's so polarizing because it's sort of this uh, innately American issue where we have the Second Amendment written into, you know, the founding documents of our country. And so people are kind of afraid to touch it and afraid to, to enter into that conversation. Um, but, you know, I think when we look at it, we see that it, it really is an issue of, of faith and life. And, and we can ask the questions, how does my faith inform my opinions about guns and my opinions about gun reform? How can I look at this through a lens of faith and not just my political affiliation? Um, and that's hard. Yeah. Taylor, with your book, what's your hope for this book? What are you, one of the things that it says is you want to encourage readers to join you in taking action for a safer future. What do you want them to do? You know, the first, uh, my first goal with the book is, is to encourage thoughtful consideration about guns, because I think so many people just sort of grow up 
believing something about guns and maybe they never even really thought about it and don't really know why they think that. And so I hope that people can read the book and and consider it. And if they don't change their mind, that's okay. Thank you for reading it. And if you do change your mind, let's, let's talk through some of these things because even if you are someone who is, is still going to maintain your opinions about guns, maybe you're really pro gun, really pro second amendment, at least I can offer you a perspective of kind of the personal cost of of guns in our country and open people's eyes to what that looks like. Um, so we can do things like donating money to local community violence prevention programs. Those are like number one way to help reduce gun violence in, in our communities. Um, you can talk to your local and state representatives about um, kind of what gun laws look like there. If you're not pro-gun law or pro-gun reform, maybe you can be pro-fund, uh, like funding for gun violence survivors. Um, there are ways to support um, people who've experienced gun violence without it being just about a law. So finding those places where you can find yourself in in this conversation is good. Um and yeah, just being willing to to talk about it with people. That's where this stuff starts. You know, we think it it starts with big laws at a national level, but, but that's kind of the ending point. There's a lot of work to be done to get there, and there's a lot of things that we can do um, without without that. Yeah, there is a podcast that you did, and I had to look it up a little bit. You actually spoke uh, with Esau McCauley about the issue of gun violence and racial tension. Talk to me about some of your thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, I think that um, we have to remember that for me, if I'm talking some like about gun reform that's going to involve new laws, um, we also have to be aware of the fact that any new laws can potentially um, affect um, sort of bl- our black and brown neighbors, um, minorities, um, more so than they will affect white people because we already have some inequality in our criminal justice system. So if we're fighting for new laws, we also have to fight for criminal justice reform. Um, And unfortunately, gun violence in America discriminately affects um, our minority communities, um, our underserved communities, people who are already um, at risk. And that's not the type of gun violence we see on the news, right? We see mass shootings and school shootings, and and it's easy to think, well, wow, this isn't that big of a deal. You know, we only hear about it every so often. When in reality, um, about 100 people will die from gun violence every single day. Over 200 will be injured. And a lot of those injuries are happening um, in in underserved communities. And, And then we have that, we have an issue of how guns affect policing, you know, a lot of what we've been talking about over the last that last year with, um, you know, the deaths of, of black men at the hands of police officers, um, because we have so many guns in America and police know that anyone they encounter um, will have a gun and that that affects racial bias, that affects, you know, the willingness to use the gun. Um, and so I, I like to say if if you're pro-police, you should be pro-gun reform as well. Um you know, makes us safer, makes police officers safer. Um, but yeah, there, there's a lot to talk about there. So I would encourage everyone to to listen to that conversation if you've got the time. Um, and I, I try to talk about that in the book as well. 
Yeah. And if you guys get a chance, she's referring to a conversation that they did at Christianity Today. So we'll make sure that we share that within the link as well, too. So, Taylor, let me ask you one final and then I'm going to ask you a couple of fun things for you. What's next? I mean, you've written the book. Are you hoping with your entrepreneurial mind to continue to do and talk more about this? Are you hoping to start a nonprofit ministry organization? What's your goal? What are you thinking about here in the next six, seven months? Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know, I always want to continue uh, writing about this and, and talking about this and um, some other sort of justice issues as well, because, um, you know, I always want to be aware of, you know, what's affecting other people, not just what's affecting me. Um, and, but yeah, I, I hope to maybe um, uh, have a way to support other survivors um, and to continue to help educate people about about gun violence. And so, yeah, we'll see what that looks like. I'm not sure, but I'm excited to see what's next. Well, one of the things I'm reading, you can find more information about Taylor at Taylor Schumann. That, that's S-C-H-U-M-A-N-N.com, taylorschumann.com. One of the things that's so evident all throughout your website is that you are passionate about writing. You just love writing ever since you were a little girl. What is it about writing that you're so passionate about? Like I asked that because I am not a passionate writer. I am a terrible writer. What is it about writing that you're just so passionate about? You know, I think everyone has things in their life that when they do them, they just feel more like themselves. And for me, that's writing. And that's always been writing, whether it's, you know, when I was a kid writing kind of short stories or, you know, fiction and now, but it's the way I process things. It's the way I'm able to kind of get the thoughts out of my head onto paper and, you know, have realizations about myself or um, kind of share myself with others. You know, I'm definitely the kind of person that if I'm having a hard conversation, I might just say, could I just write something to you? <laughs> could I just write you a letter? You know, that's, it's, and it's the way I, it's something I feel like God has given me, um, to connect to myself and connect with him. And, and I just love it. And, um, yeah, I'm thankful to, to help other people do a thing that they love too. Yep. Taylor, I totally, it's like for me, I don't like writing, but I like having these conversations yeah. because the conversations allows me to hear what other people are thinking. It allows yeah. me to dialogue on. And a lot of times I could go hours by doing this versus writing it is something I struggle with, but each one of us are designed differently in terms of how God has created us. Yeah, I love yeah. that. As we wrap up, a couple of things. Nespresso machine. Tell me <laughs> about Nespresso machine. What is? Why is it one of the best things that you've ever bought? <laughs> yeah, my husband got me my Nespresso machine uh, for last Mother's Day. Okay. So we've had it a little over a year. Um, but I love to be able to make um, an iced shaken espresso like I used to get at Starbucks and I make like some uh, simple syrup to put in there and mix it with some heavy cream and can have some, you know, a really great iced coffee in the afternoons at home. And uh, yeah, I love that. And we are very similar in the sense that we're both INFJs. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's so funny to me how it's supposed to be like the most rare um, of the Myers-Briggs personality types, I think, but I seem to find fellow yeah. INFJs all over the internet. 
Yeah. And Taylor, I'm not sure about you is a lot of times I seem extroverted, but my yes. best days are when I'm sitting here at 7 a.m. until about five o'clock. Not too many people are calling me. I don't have too many Zoom calls because if I have too many Zoom calls, I get tired. And yes. when people say, hey, let's grab lunch. Not really. Well, can we talk on the phone? Well, can you just email me what you need? I am a true introvert. Yeah, I think it, it's for me, it's like I can do the extroverted things, but it takes me a long time to gear up for them. Yeah, and then it yeah. takes me a long time to like come back down afterwards because it does. It takes so much energy and yeah. sort of like in the moment I'm good. And then later it's like, oh, I think I need to be by myself for a week. <laughs> I know with this book, you've written about gun violence and you've written about your journey as well, too. Are there other topics that you're hoping to dwell in? Is it more justice, mercy issues? Is it more fiction? Is it more? What, what is it that you like to write about? Yeah, I a little bit of everything. You know, I, I last year I wrote a piece about um, sort of my obsession with true crime. And that was a really fun piece to write, kind of relating that to my experience and what that was like. And I've also written a lot about motherhood, um, my experience with uh, postpartum depression and just things that I'm finding in my life. But I do really like to write fiction. I would love to explore maybe writing some fiction or writing a children's book maybe. So I'm kind of open to to see what happens. But yeah, I like to write about everything. I could see you writing a children's book. I really can. Oh, yeah, thanks. I think I would really like to do that. So we'll see. <laughs> Taylor, one final question as we wrap up. You talked about postpartum depression. You mm -hmm. also talked about your journey. What do you think as you look back, what's God been teaching you through all these experiences? Oh, man. I think that he is enough and he is not afraid of what i'm dealing with and it can never be too much for him i think the biggest thing i've learned um and i don't know if you're into the enneagram but i'm a two um so i, I really hate feeling like uh, a burden to others or like an inconvenience to others and i think that finds its way into to my faith with god as well and i think from him knowing that I'm not a burden to him. I'm not an inconvenience to him. He loves to be with me and he loves to help me and to carry the things that I'm carrying. Um, and you know, that kind of transformed everything with how I talk to God and how I pray and um, yeah, just that I'm not a burden. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very good. Through my cancer journey, Taylor, I had to learn that I have to learn to cling upon truth yeah. because in my worst pain, if I allow my sinful heart to give into my desires, I get mm -hmm. bitter and I get angry. Yeah. But I have to look beyond all that and says, Lord, if your truths or your scripture are true, I have to learn to cling upon those truths, ignore the personal feelings, yeah. and trust that you will always be there and that your words, it may not always be smooth and it may not always be easy, but you're going to be there and I have to learn to trust you just as you were there with Joseph, just mm. as you were there with David, just where as you were there all throughout scripture, you were always there. I had to yeah. learn how to deal with that. Yeah. I love that. You know, truth doesn't always feel true yeah. is, is one thing I, yeah, I remember as well, but yeah, that's really good. Besides your website, where else can they follow you? Instagram, Twitter, uh, where can they follow you on those? Yeah. I'm on Twitter at Taylor S Schumann. And I'm on Instagram at Taylor Schumann Writes. 
um, yeah, and I'm both of those places. So come find me. Got it. And will you be accepting people? We talked about a writing cohort. Will that be starting anytime soon here, Taylor? Yeah, I'm planning to offer my writing mentorship again um, in the fall, potentially September, October, um, around there. Um, and yeah, I'll, I'll make those announcements on my social media and my website. So yeah, check back within the next month or so and there should be something there. Taylor Schumann, author, writer at taylorschumann.com. Your book is When Thoughts and Prayers Aren't Enough, A Shooting Survivor's Journey into the Realities of Gun Violence. Hey, thank you very much. Now, is your two and a half year old, is he up yet or is he still sleeping? He is at uh, Mom's Morning Out today oh, at a good. local church, um, hanging out with, with some friends and some great teachers. So, yeah. Very, very good. Yeah. Taylor, we'll talk soon. Okay. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of the Grow Center's Entrepreneurial Ministry Leader Podcast. To stay connected, make sure you subscribe to the Grow Center channel, rate and review this episode, and make sure to share on your social media platforms. We would love for you to follow along with the Grow Center on Instagram and Facebook at Grow Center Network and our website at www.thegrowcenter.com. See you next time.